Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. This edition of Radio Curious discusses one man's personal experience in recognizing his homosexuality. Until the mid-1970s, many people considered homosexuality to be a mental disorder and or a crime, as it is still in some personal and political belief systems. Homosexual people sometimes were housed in mental institutions, given medication, and suffered an array of treatment methods, including shock therapy and other forms of behavior modification. Professor Robert Dole, our guest in this edition of Radio Curious, was one of many people subjected to behavior modification. In his book, How to Make a Success of Your Schizophrenia, he explains how the, quote, treatment he endured as an attempt to alter his homosexual preference made him schizophrenic. His personal memoir describes his experiences growing up in the 1960s as a gay man, his institutionalization at the McLean Mental Hospital in Massachusetts, the insanity that consumed him as a result of his treatment, his self-led recovery partially based on a spiritual experience, and his subsequent extraordinary life in academia. Professor Dole, who is fluent in seven languages, teaches English as a foreign language at the University of Chicoutimi in rural Quebec, Canada, where he has lived for 30-plus years. Robert Dole and I visited by phone from his office at the University of Chicoutimi on November 4, 2011, and began our conversation when I asked him to describe the schizophrenia he experienced. that I'm talking about is called schizophrenia. And uh, I know that not many people talk about their experience of schizophrenia. Not many people write about it. Most people are ashamed of it. And they want to keep it hidden. And I kept it hidden pretty well uh, from the general public until the year 2000 when I published a book about it. But it's something that I always shared with my friends. I always told my friends about it. And uh, because it was the most important experience of my life, I went through a very, very severe uh, schizophrenic psychosis when I was 18 years old. I was hospitalized for 15 months uh, during my adolescence from age 18 to 20. And it totally, totally, totally destroyed my life. And I had to start all over again in terms of rebuilding my psyche, rebuilding my soul, rebuilding my mind, rebuilding my social uh, network, rebuilding my love life, and so forth. Uh, it started, this whole problem started when I was 16 years old, and I was forced to see a psychiatrist, and the psychiatrist had the task of trying to change my sexual orientation. Now, this was back in 1962, and in 1962, homosexuality was considered to be a mental illness as well as being a crime in the United States, as well as being a sin if one belonged to the Catholic Church. I didn't go to the Catholic Church, but many people in the United States regarded homosexuality as being a sin, a crime, and a mental illness. This is the atmosphere in which I grew up, and I was 16 years old, and I was at a very prestigious school, which is called the Phillips Exeter Academy in Exeter, New Hampshire. It's the school of John Irving. John Irving's almost all of his novels a situation take place at Exeter. Anyway, it's a 
famous prestigious school, and uh, I was there, uh, I would say, about three days or so, uh, when my roommate confided to me about his personal life. He was 16 years old. His name was Jeffrey, and uh, he had spent his life, uh, his childhood and adolescence until age 16 in South America. He came from a wealthy American family, but he grew up in Peru and Colombia. And uh, he confided in me that uh, he had been to a brothel with some friends of his uh, in Lima, and they went in there to have their first sexual experience. And uh, his experience with the lady had been a big disappointment for him. And he felt bad about it. He felt uh, that his masculinity was in question and one thing and another. He was upset about what had happened or what had not happened in the brothel. And uh, so he confided this in me. And then I was very, very, uh, very touched that he should confide such a thing to me because I didn't, had never heard anybody b- before talk about a sexual experience and or, or the lack of a sexual experience. It was all very new to me. So at the end of his confession, I just said, well, Jeffrey, I said, I want to tell you something. I said, I'm a homosexual. And uh, he looked at me with amazement, the way I'd looked at him with amazement. And uh, the next evening, uh, he and I uh, made love. And um, so this is a very naughty thing to do in a private boarding school. You're not supposed to do this sort of thing. And... Um, I was very happy about what had taken place, but Jeffrey couldn't live with it, and he went to see a uh, doctor in the infirmary at at Exeter, and at about 10 o'clock that morning, I was called into the dean's office, and the dean told me that uh, normally I would be expelled immediately, but because I was a new boy, Exeter would be charitable towards me, and I could stay at, continue at the school on the condition that I see a psychiatrist. So, of course, I was happy that I can continue, could continue there after the crime that I had committed. And You call it a crime? Well, I mean, it was, it was a crime, according to the books, but I mean, it was, it was a, a reason for expelling me from the school. And uh, if I had not been a new boy, if Jeffrey and I had not been new boys, we would both have been expelled. We wouldn't have had the chance of being cured by a psychiatrist. So um, uh, in their eyes, it was the worst thing that uh, two residents or two students at Exeter could possibly do. So uh, they separated the two of us, and I moved to the other end of the campus. And I had to see a psychiatrist once a week for the entire time that I was there. And Jeffrey saw another psychiatrist. And... um, the psychiatrist, my to make a long story short, my psychiatrist drove me insane. And Jeffrey, uh, after uh, this uh, psychotherapy, committed suicide. So I cannot blame uh, Jeffrey's psychiatrist for his suicide. All I can say is that the suicide happened after he had this uh, psychotherapy at Exeter. And uh, I became psychotic, totally uh, psychotic, my first semester at Harvard in 1964. I had my first schizophrenic hallucination in the summer of 1963, after one year of the psychiatric torture. Can I ask you what you mean when you said that your psychiatrist drove you insane? Well, my psychiatrist uh, told me that his job was to change my sexual orientation. I knew that I was a homosexual, and I was living in an all-boys school. There were no girls present at all there. There, was, there were no women, basically, 
in in my social life, and I had to change my sexual orientation. So I wanted to test the efficiency or the I wanted to test modern medicine, and I wanted to see whether psychiatry could actually change my sexual orientation. So I went and I bought a Playboy calendar, and I put the Playboy calendar in my room, and I said, as the psychotherapy continues, I should stop desiring the boys surrounding me, and I should start desiring the Playboy bunnies on the Playboy calendar. Because I I really thought it was kind of ridiculous that this going to uh, uh, talking to a doctor would change the nature of my sexual desires. I just thought it was totally ridiculous, but I thought I would give it a fair chance. I said, maybe there's some magic involved, and I will actually develop desires for women instead of for men. So I looked at these Playboy bunnies, and of course I didn't stop desiring their boys, and I didn't start desiring the Playboy bunnies. But my psychiatrist told me things like, if people know that you're a homosexual, you will never have any job, you will never have any friends. He said, if you continue as a homosexual, you will end up a bum in the Bowery. All homosexuals end up a bums in the Bowery. He said, if you identify with me, you can become a heterosexual because I am a heterosexual. <laughs> I mean, he was a, he, the, the guy was totally insane, and he was a psychiatrist. But according to the American Psychiatric Association, until the 15th of December 1973, homosexuality was a mental illness. So he was just following the general behaviorist mentality of the American psychiatrists of the 1960s. They actually believed that homosexuality was a mental illness and that it could be cured and that psychiatrists should do everything they could to cure it. I was never submitted to electric shocks, but there were behaviorist psychiatrists who gave electric shocks to homosexuals. They would sit the young man in a chair with wires on him, and they would project a a slide of a naked man on the screen and then turn on the electricity and give a shock to to the homosexual, and then replace the picture of the naked man by a picture of a naked woman and turn off the electricity. So the idea, this is a behaviorist mentality, was that um, if the man associated looking at naked men with pain, they would stop desiring them. And if they associated seeing naked women with the end of pain or pleasure, then they would start desiring the women. Anyway, that was total nonsense. But that was the American psychiatric profession in the 1960s. They didn't do any of that kind of behavioral modification to you, correct? No, they didn't do any electric shocks with me. No, they didn't. What were their attempts or what were their practices to modify what they characterized was your errant or wrong behavior? Well, my psychiatrist's attitude was simply that if he persuaded me that there was was nothing worse on earth than being a homosexual, that I would just stop being one. Or maybe, maybe perhaps he thought his job was to convince me that I should simply repress it. I remember he told me, for example, he said, you must marry a woman just like everybody else, but you must never tell your wife that you are homosexual. Because if you do, she will worry every time that you go bowling with the men from the office. So he had already planned out my entire personal life. You know, this is back in the, in the 60s, the early 60s in the United States, when everybody lived in this great big conformity, trying to be uh, perfect Americans and good patriots. And you remember how conformist America was before the hippie revolution. Well, that's the way it was back in 1962. And this guy was a real dud anyway. He was a, a man, a doctor, who had spent his entire life 
as a physician in the United States Navy examining the bodies of young sailors. And then when he retires, he became a psychiatrist in an all-boys school trying to cure homosexuals. So, I mean, the, the man obviously had his own problems. And I was just a victim of a very bad psychiatrist. And my friend Jeffrey was a vic- was the victim of situations, uh, a similar situation. And uh, uh, so when I had when I had my when I became totally psychotic in the spring of 1965, when I was at Harvard, I was taken out to McLean Hospital, which was uh, I was had gone from the most prestigious. Uh, private school to the most prestigious university to the most prestigious mental hospital, all in the period of one year. And uh, so there I was at McLean Hospital, which was the scene of Girl Interrupted and uh, and one thing and another, a very famous place. Uh, uh, Sylvia Plath had been there, Robert Lowell had been there, Ray Charles was on my ward. Anyway, it was a famous mental hospital. And I was there, I, my first evening there, I was running around uh, naked, shouting and screaming, and I was sitting down in the car, and, and I looked up, and there was Jeffrey. Jeffrey was already on the ward, and uh, Jeffrey was uh, uh, contemplating suicide, and I was uh, uh, totally psychotic. And we had, this is the result of, uh, of of the psychiatry that we had had at Exeter. Anyway, so I was locked up there for 13 months, and it was absolute it was absolute hell. They, I was drugged out of my mind with thorazine and, and different types of tranquilizers. And um, it was just, uh, it was hell. I mean, the psychiatrist there told me quite blankly that they had never, ever seen anybody as mentally, as seriously mentally ill as I was, that I was the most psychotic person that they had ever seen. And they told me I should never uh, go back to Harvard. I should never even think of going back to Harvard. They tried to convinced me more or less that I would spend my entire life as a victim uh, or as a psychiatric patient. And the sooner I became resigned to the fact that I could never lead a normal life, the better it would be for me. And um, they uh, they had a very, very negative attitude about me. They did nothing to encourage me whatsoever. That sounds like they had a contradiction. They were attempting to modify your behavior but at the same time, they're telling you that you would never lead a normal life. Was that an implication that they knew their attempts to modify behavior would have no effect? Uh, these are two different periods of my life. The first one was the psychiatrist at Exeter who tried to change my sexual orientation. The other, now we're advanced a year later, and I'm locked up in a mental hospital as a result of what the psychiatrist at Exeter did. And in the mental hospital, I never. I refused to talk to the psychiatrists about my homosexuality. I refused to talk to them about uh, the religious nature of my schizophrenic hallucinations, because I realized in the first case that they thought that homosexuality was a mental illness, and I didn't think it was. And in the second case, I thought that no psychiatrist had the theological qualifications to make any sort of comment on my religious experiences. So I refused to talk to my psychiatrist about the two major issues that were going on in my mind, my sexual orientation and my beatific beatific vision. So um, I just didn't talk to them about that. They, you know, they gave me a lot of uh, drugs and one thing and another, and they listened to me. I had a, a, a psychiatrist. The first one, I had a different psychiatrist. I had one who was a horrible monster, and I fired her. 
And then I had a nice a younger one who was really very, very nice, and he sat there in front of me smoking cigarettes and taking notes, and took, took many, many notes on what I said. I mean, he was a nice guy. He was sympathetic. And uh, I liked him, but I didn't talk to him about anything important. <laughs> and um, I'd like to ask you if you could describe what the beatific visions looked like to you. Yeah, well, yes, I had, this is, after, this is my first schizophrenic hallucination. It was after the summer, uh, it was during the summer of 1963, after one year of psychiatric torture, I had a beatific vision, and uh, it was total ecstasy, and I saw the kingdom of God, and uh, I saw eternity, and I was, had this, the certainty that I had seen the moment of supreme truth, and that the world that you and I live in, this this visual material world that you and I live in, is basically uh, an illusion. And that what is true is God and eternity, and this material world is ephemeral and a fiction and an illusion. Anyway, it was a pure ecstasy. And I told myself after this experience, at the age of 17, that as long as I lived, I would believe that I had seen the absolute truth and that I would have faith in this truth that I had seen, and that this faith would get me out of, would, would accompany through life, and would save me from, from disaster. And I said, I will maintain faith in this experience. I will maintain faith in God no matter what happens, and God will save me, and oh, this faith will save me. And it turns out that I was right. I mean, my faith did sustain me, is the way that your faith sustained you related to your recovery from schizophrenia? Certainly. Can you link that for us? But before you do, I want to say that in this edition of Radio Curious, we're visiting with Robert Dole, a professor at the University of Chicotame in north-central Quebec, about 150 miles north of Quebec City. You're listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Bobby, can you link the recoveries for us? Yeah, I, you know, I had this, I said, I'm going to keep this faith in God, and God is going to see me through. Faith in God is also, uh, gives confidence in oneself. And so I had this confidence, and I have to admit, I knew that I was intelligent, because I knew what had driven me insane. It was the psychiatrist that had driven me insane, and I knew that the way for me to recover would be for me to do everything that he told me I should never do. In other words, I should live out my sexuality, my homosexuality, and one thing and another. I should live it. I should do it. I should accept it. I should assume it. And this would bring me some sort of salvation. Anyway, when I was in this first mental hospital, I met a young lady named Camille. And Camille and I became very, very good friends. And she taught me Italian, which is then my third foreign language after French and German. And when I eventually got out of the hospital in Baltimore, I came back after two months in Baltimore. I came back to Boston, and Camille and I became very good friends. We actually became lovers, and uh, she encouraged me to experience, to, to live my homosexuality. She Not only did she encourage me to do it, but she more or less picked up my first lover. And uh, for me, anyway, uh, that's another story, but... Uh, 
one thing led to another, and I was surrounded in Cambridge by friends and by lovers and by wonderful people, by hippies, people with a very open mind. I was surrounded by crazy people. I, mean, I was basically crazy, but crazy people recognize each other, and we help each other, and we enjoy each other. What year was this? This was 1966 that I, I, I got out of the mental hospital and went to Cambridge. And Cambridge was like Haight-Ashbury. In 1966, there were three centers for hippies. There was Haight-Ashbury, Greenwich Village, and Harvard Square. These are the three centers of the hippie movement back then. Or the, yes. Anyway, so I was in I was in Cambridge at Harvard, you know, near Harvard Square, and I had a wonderful, wonderful life there. And uh, so I finished Harvard in 1968, four years after I'd finished Exeter, despite having spent 15 months in mental hospitals. And uh, on graduation day, I just by coincidence, I walked into Jeffrey. I walked in front of Jeffrey. I saw Jeffrey. I went up to him, I shook his hands, and I said, I'm so glad to see you here today. And he shook my hand, and he said, so am I. And I think those are the only words that we had exchanged since we were roommates at Exeter in September 1962. So that was now six years later. And we both graduated from Exeter on the, uh, from Harvard in 1968, despite our stays in mental hospitals. And then I left for Europe. I left the United States forever. Jeffrey studied to become a lawyer at the University of Virginia Law School. And he committed suicide at the age of 27, I believe. So he never really got over the traumas that he had experienced in his adolescence. And um, so I was, then I was in Europe, and I, was, I lived in Europe for eight years, and I had a very interesting, happy life in Europe. And then I came to Quebec. So I've been in Quebec since 1977, and I've had a very happy life here. And I've, had, I've never had any trouble, never had any psychiatric trouble. I've never taken any psychiatric medicine. I've never seen, gone to any psychiatrist, and I haven't been locked up in mental hospitals. Bobby, you also at one time in your life were married, and you have a son who lives in Europe with whom you're very close. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I lived in Europe, as I said, for eight years, and I spent a year teaching at the University of Wuch or Lutz in Poland, and that's where I met the lady who was to become my wife, and she and I married, and we moved to Spain. We spent two years in Spain, in Tarragona, 100 kilometers from Barcelona, right on the coast, and then we moved to Chicoutimi, to Quebec, and Patrick was born here in 1978, so we were... We moved here in 77, Patrick was born in 78, and my son, with whom I'm very close, as you say, grew up here in Chicoutimi, and he had three languages growing up. He had English, French, and Polish. Uh, he speaks all three of them as a native, and he's been in Europe now for 14 years, and he's learned Russian, so I'm very proud of him because he's, uh, because he's my son, first of all, but also because he's been able to use his languages, his three languages, and to make a life for himself based on his languages and based on his cosmopolitan background and his international culture. Bobby Dole, tell us a little bit about the work that you do. All right. So I'm a professor of English as a foreign language, and I've always had this job, this profession. I started it in 1970 in France at a university in France called the University of Metz. It was in eastern France. I chose to go to eastern France because I wanted to improve my German as well as my French. 
And so Lorraine was the perfect place for me to do that. I was there for one year, and then I moved to Germany. I lived in Germany for three years, and I was a, a lecturer for English at the University of Bonn, which was the capital at the time. It was a very beautiful university, an old castle in the center of Bonn, right on the Rhine River, uh, one block away from the house where Beethoven was born. It was a beautiful, beautiful situation. Sometimes I think I should have stayed there. When I look at the snow here in February, I said I should be back in Bonn. But anyway, so then after that, I went to uh, to Poland. Poland. I wanted to learn a Slavic language, and uh, so I found a job at the University of Wuch in Poland. That was communist Poland. It was. I went there in 1974. I was there uh, for one year. I met my wife there, and she and I went and moved to Spain. And I was in Spain. We were in Spain for two years. And I already I had learned Spanish in Germany, and when I was in Poland, I started learning Polish, and I've kept up my Polish. And then we came to Canada in 1977. My son was born here in 78. So, and I've been teaching now. I'm professor here uh, of English at this university. I've been here since 1977. That's 34 years, and then I hope to retire in four years' time when I'm 69 years old. Well, Bobby Dole, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Well, thank you very much. And before we close, I'd like to ask you about a eureka or an epiphany moment in your life that transformed it. And I think that's what you spent most of the program telling us about, but maybe not. One that remains in my memory is when I traveled to Istanbul, in 1970, that was when I was living in France, and I drove from France to Istanbul with an American girlfriend. And when I got to Istanbul, I was just so totally amazed by the f- fact of seeing the Orient. I had never seen anything like the Orient before. It was, by, it was my first experience of an Oriental civilization, and I was overwhelmed. I was like Francisco Pizarro looking at the Pacific Ocean. I thought that I had discovered something immortal and infinitely beautiful and mysterious. Beyond traveling, what would you like to do with the rest of your one precious life? Well, I want to keep on working until I'm 69, and then after that, I want to continue what I've been doing for the all my life, and that is I want to continue studying my seven languages. Because, you know, I speak seven languages, and a language is like a flower. You have to water it. You have to practice your languages, not only to keep them, but you have to add to them. You have to let, make them grow. And so I practice all seven of them here in Chikudami, but when I retire, I hope to have, I will have more time to practice more of them. I cannot practice all of them all the time because it just isn't enough time. And finally, can you recommend a book to our listeners? Yes, I would like to recommend The Death of Ivan Illich by Tolstoy. I think it's one of the most fantastic books ever written. I love Tolstoy. I think he has a very, very profound mind, and I admire his style. But talking about books, there's one author, my favorite author is actually an Austrian Jew whose name is Stefan Zweig. And I would like to recommend Stefan Zweig to all your uh, listeners. I'm an absolute fanatic of Stefan Zweig. I've read every book that he wrote, 37 of them. I have them all at home. I've read all of them in German. I just love this author. Not many of his books are available in English. If you ever have a chance to read Stefan Zweig, I suggest you do. Well, Bobby Dole, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. 
Professor Robert Dole teaches English as a foreign language at the University of Chicoutimi in Quebec, Canada. He is the author of many books, including The American Nightmare and How to Make a Success of Your Schizophrenia. He is fluent in seven languages. This interview with Professor Dole was recorded on November 4, 2011. The books he recommends are The Death of Ivan Illich by Leo Tolstoy and any book written by Stefan Zweig. All Radio Curious programs are free at our website, radiocurious.org. Our phone is 707-462-6541. Email is curious at radiocurious.org. Stale mail is Post Office Box 7, Ukiah 95482, California. Christina Anastad is our associate producer. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.